Welcome again to another exciting episode of the Crowdsource Politics News Roundup. I'm the host and moderator, Cypher here. And today we have a lot of things to cover, a lot of things going on in the U.S. political scene, but we are so glad for you to have joined us. Uh, if this is your first time you've joined the Crowdsource Politics News Roundup, we uh, do this every Thursday between, generally speaking, between 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time to 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, where we cover the news that was for the past week or so kind of modeled after the same kind of uh, podcasts like the uh, what you'd see on the NPR News Roundup, Friday News Roundup, or like any of the Sunday morning shows. And so that is what we're here. Uh, Crowdsource Politics is a podcast that was born out of a funky little corner of the political debate community on Facebook that became a podcast. And we've been doing this for about two years. The CSP News Roundup, Thursday News Roundup, is what we like to do in order to make it a interactive experience for our podcast for our listeners and for people like you turning in now what we are uh we have some news for you about world news news so we are actually going to split the news roundup from domestic and international in one segment into two different programs the crowdsource politics news roundup will continue and cypher state our other podcast that focuses focuses on foreign affairs and foreign policy will pick up an international news roundup program here in the next month or so so be on the lookout for that same channel it's just that we're going to split it up and we're going to do more for that so let's go ahead and get into national politics starting with congress the big news on the hill this week is that all about legislative movement on the debt ceiling, the bipartisan infrastructure bill that was passed in the Senate with 19 Republican votes, and the partisan bill that significantly expands the social safety net that Democrats want to pass using the budget reconciliation process. Let's get started with the debt limit. We've covered the inherent dangers of an October 1st government shutdown, which Republicans in both houses seem to be perfectly fine with, to the point that they're refusing to vote on the matter. So... Tonight, we'll give you a brief recap and take a look at what's happening since our last roundup. The debt limit, or ceiling, is the amount of money that the federal government can borrow to meet its financial obligations. The U.S. runs with a budget deficit because it spends more than it brings in with taxes and other revenue sources. So the government must borrow large sums of money in order to meet its obligations. A key point here is that the lifting of the debt ceiling doesn't authorize any new spending. It simply allows the federal government to pay for its existing obligations. The U.S. actually hit its debt limit at the end of July after Congress passed a two-year extension in 2019. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has been using quote-unquote extraordinary measures since then to delay a default. Those measures include fiscal accounting tools that control certain government investments in order to control continue to pay the bills, also relying on things such as the amount of revenue that's coming in, you know, kind of robbing Peter to pay Paul thing going on there, but... Uh, the government so far has been able to continue to meet its obligations under federal law. Rising the debt ceiling has typically been a bipartisan, almost de rigueur, legislative action. But this year, the Republicans have decided that since the Democrats control the White House, the House, and the Senate, they are in a position to make some kind of political hay by laying it off the laps of Democrats. The government will likely run out of cash at some point between October 15th and November 4th, though it's hard to project the exact due date. 
due to pandemic relief that still has yet to be distributed, an uncertainty about how much tax revenue will be realized in the fall. Currently, the national debt stands at $28.43 trillion. The borrowing cap is set at $28.4 trillion, which leaves the federal government with, a little, with very little room. The entire U.S. domestic product last year was $20.93 trillion. As a historical perspective, the debt ceiling was initiated in 1917, so that the Treasury didn't need to get permission every time it needed to issue bonds to pay bills. A general limit on federal debt was created in 1939. There are those experts who say that the debt limit should be done away with entirely because it's increasingly becoming a political weapon and the economic risk associated with default are high. But that would take an act of Congress that in these times of political polarization is entirely unlikely. So we're now at the precipice of a game of political chicken that has started by the Republicans in both the House and the Senate. There have been times in the past where we've come close to default, but given that both parties understand the grave risks of the economy, Congress has always acted in the end. And it is important to note here it would not only impact the U.S. economy, but the global economy at large because of how tied U.S. is in the global economy. This time around, Republicans are both acknowledging that the ceiling must be raised and insisting that Democrats do it alone, while at the same time are preventing them from doing so through regular procedure. The Republicans aren't even demanding anything from the Democrats in exchange for supporting the debt limit. Instead, they are refusing to do so and claim their opposition is all about Democrats' plan spending, even though the increase is also needed to cover spending that Congress has previously approved. So what this really boils down to is that we have Republicans doing what Republicans do best and trying to make hay out of the amount of spending that the U.S. government does. Despite the fact that Republicans in general have been very okay with increasing debts and the deficit, as long as it was accompanied by things that they liked, uh, for example, defense spending, tax cuts, etc. Remember, tax cuts pay for themselves, but any spending the government does does not pay for itself, and it can be an immense risk to the economy at whole. During the hearings that Congress was having due to the COVID relief with, and with the debt ceiling itself with Secretary Yellen and Fed Chairman Paul, they asked many questions revolving around inflation and also whether or not Democrats could theoretically raise the debt limit themselves. Republicans are essentially here trying to keep a hands off approach on this so that they don't get bloodied by their own members and they won't be able to be blamed for running up deficits. They believe, and this is in my opinion here, they believe that they cannot lose in this situation. If the, if the government defaults because they've had so much success at painting it as a democratic problem, then they win politically. If the government doesn't raise the debt ceiling uh, but doesn't default, for example, or they lower the debt ceiling, they lower the amount of money that would be borrowed, rather, they win because then they can go to their constituents and say, hey, we caused the Democrats to spend less money on social services that you do not agree with. And finally... They can use this as a political cudgel against Democrats and use the leverage that moderate Democrats have, who are also against increasing spending willy-nilly, quote-unquote, and use that as a way to get people like Joe Manchin or Kirsten Sinema in order to negotiate down that future spending cap 
of uh, roughly $3.5 trillion for new social programs. As coming out of news today, Joe Manchin had stated that he does not want to see it uh, be $3.5 trillion and has said that he would like to see it only increase by $1.5 trillion. If you've paid attention to this program, you know that I personally believe that the amount of spending that we can see on social programs coming out of the Biden budget would be actually reduced between 2 to $2.5 trillion. Setting such a low bar in negotiations, which is what Manchin is doing, leads credence to that, I believe. So that is what we're seeing here. I'll restate that I really do not think Republicans feel like they can lose. And so what it has to happen with this is that Democrats need to be able to whip their party into shape and get their moderate wing to support increasing the debt limit, which they are already on board, but also use any leverage they can to get as much of that $3.5 trillion that they want into passage. Let's continue. As the New York Times reported, the Trump administration in 2017 tax cuts have continued significantly to contributed significantly, sorry, to the debt ceiling being reached, and it would have to be raised even without another penny spending by Democrats. So again, Republicans believe that tax cuts pay for themselves. You can do anything you want for tax cuts, right? But God forbid you do anything for spending and help out regular folk. There you go. Another thing that should be mentioned here is that because of the tax cuts, um, Joe Manchin himself would like to see every single one of the Trump tax cuts eliminated. Now, he said every single one, but I'm fairly certain that he would be okay with keeping the increase to the standard deduction. I'm fairly confident that he would be okay with keeping those, but eliminating the tax cuts to corporations, the top 20% of income earners, etc. So while this, so let's continue giving a little more recap here. So while the Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell is arguing that it is the responsibility of the party in power to raise the ceiling, Democrats voted to do so on a bipartisan basis where Republicans were in power, as previously stated. In other words, the whole thing is political posturing, and even when Republicans have sometimes bucked the party line, are playing along. Democrats can solve this by themselves, according to Mitt Romney, as told the reporters this week. They have the votes to do it. Again, bringing in this, it's it's being done for political gain here. Political gain is what is what is, matters to these people. They don't care if we default. Well, they don't believe they will default. They're playing a giant game of chicken, and they believe they will win politically or forcing Democrats to do what they want. So we need to talk about the government shutdown here. So the government shutdown was originally paired with the debt ceiling increase. Government is only funded for X number X period of time based on uh, the budget and the budget is set to expire right around October 1st. And if they don't pass a continuing resolution, which is a stopgap measure saying basically saying we're going to take the budget that we had and just extend it for a few months playing, you know, some accounting games to project how much that actually is then the government shuts down and it has its own political ramifications. Democrats were originally wanting to tie these two. They wanted to pass both of them at the same time. Republicans said no and forced a 64 threshold to do so. Since then, Schumer has decoupled the debt ceiling from the budget. And Senate passed a short-term spending bill to avert government shutdown. And this was as of 40 minutes ago. So this is breaking, breaking news. 
Uh, according to the New York Times, racing to avoid the government shutdown at midnight, President Biden signed a spending bill on Thursday evening that extends federal funding through early December and provides emergency aid to support both the resettlement of Afghan refugees and disaster recovery across the country. The president's signature came after lawmakers hastily cleared the measure in both chambers earlier in the day. The Senate's vote was 65 to 35. The House's vote was 254 to 175. Quote, this is a good outcome, one I am happy with we are getting done, said Chuck Schumer. With so many things happening in Washington, the last thing the American people need is for the government to grind to a halt. So this was actually passed uh, earlier this evening, like I said, 40 minutes ago or so. So they were successful in decoupling it, and that was a win for Republicans. So that's what we are at. We are at the Republicans continuing to defy the need to raise the debt ceiling over I'm going to say it, fake fears of budget deficits. They don't care about budget deficits. They just don't want the spending done on social programs. They don't want the, or at least want as much spending being done on social programs as what is being proposed. Now, there are some Republicans, such as Mitt Romney, who have suggested that we should make permanent the child tax credit expansion that was done uh, and maybe provide some money to families for child care, but doesn't want it to be nearly as big as the Democrats want it, doesn't want it to be universal. So he is against doing it as well. The Democratic side, again, Joe Manchin, is against the $3.5 trillion and suggested $1.5 trillion, but has said that it is negotiable. So again, I'm going to say probably around $2 trillion is what we're going to see. I'm hoping for closer to 2.5. Now, this brings up what is happening with that partisan bill. The partisan bill being the amount of money spent to expand social programs. The intent is to pass the tax and spending bill through reconciliation, but Democrats remain divided over how large it should be and what it should contain. Democrats in the House are nearing the end of their rope with Manchin and Cinema, but most of their ire is focused now on Cinema. After all, Manchin is a senator from Ruby Red, Virginia, a state Trump won by 40 points. While there remains some hope that Manchin will eventually get to, get to yes, Cinema is from Arizona, a state that voted blue. The problem is that neither Manchin nor Cinema have indicated what they object to in the bill, which leaves Democrats flat-footed. So the progressive resistance uh, in the article from NBC News headlined "Mutually Assured Destruction," the president, the progressive resistance won support from allies in the Senate as Senate Ber Senator Bernie Sanders independent from Vermont, called on House colleagues to vote against the bipartisan infrastructure bill until Congress passes a strong reconciliation bill. Quote, my fear is that if the dual agreements that was reached is broken and we just passed the infrastructure, the leverage that we have here in the Senate to pass a reconciliation bill will be largely gone. Need to know what both bills to threaten to vote against one until unless the other one is ready for my approval is not only hostage taking, but risk backfiring. Representative Gary Connolly of Virginia has said, because the people who are passionately in favor of the infrastructure bill, if you defeat it, may very well decide that they'll return the favor on your favorite bill, reconciliation. We have to understand we're in a situation of mutually assured destruction here. The old mad Cold War. You kill my bill, I'll kill yours. And we don't want either one kill either one, Connolly said. We have one senator from a state President Biden carried from a state where her colleague is 100% on board holding up the agenda of the entire of the of the National Democratic Party. The senator refuses to even give a number, said Congressman Ro Khanna. So you're, here's my question. What is the Democratic Party going to tell a single senator? It's time to get behind our president. It's time to get in line.
In response, Cinema spokesman John Lambert said, Senator Cinema does not make decisions based on campaign politics. She makes decisions based on what's best for Arizona and the country. I'm going to call bullshit on this one. It seems that either she ran as a progressive and lied about it in order to win the primary and thus the Democratic, or thus the seat, or she has since been co-opted by groups such as Americans for Prosperity, the Koch Brothers Organization, etc., and is trying to tamp down on the spending bills because they don't want to see their taxes increase. And I think that is what we're actually seeing here with Kirsten Cinema. Joe Manchin has similar issues, but Joe Manchin actually seems to care about his legacy so he's willing to play ball a little bit more maybe it's because he's got a little more party loyalty being in the party for longer than kirsten cinema or it could just be that you know he's he's friends with joe biden and he doesn't want to make his friend mad but either way it seems that uh this is actually what's happening uh representative jamal brown democrat from new york said that there's a lack of trust that the senate will act after it has ignored many other bills that the house has passed so this all comes down to leverage. As uh, Senator Sanders had said, if they pass the infrastructure bill, the House passes the infrastructure bill, they have no leverage over the moderates in the House to pass the $3.5 trillion spending bill. $3.5 trillion spending bill has things such as universal pre-K, universal free community college, expansion of child care, uh, and, and a host, a whole host of other things, some things dealing with the environment and some things dealing with, uh, what we call social capital or social infrastructure. And it's one of the highest priorities for progressives. And as Biden ran, it was one of his top priorities in order to quote unquote, build back better, meaning being able to give people a hand up in the changing economy in order to ensure that everybody has a fair shake in the economy. So that's what we're seeing here with this. Now, as far as the bipartisan bill, the infrastructure bill, again, they were supposed to vote on this on the 27th. It has been pushed back. And the reason being, is, as stated already, is because of the need to have leverage in order to pass the, the larger bill that is more important to progressives. Everybody, it seems, agrees on the need for infrastructure. One of the concerning things about the infrastructure bill though is that despite the fact that it is the most we spent on infrastructure in a single bill for some time it is still not enough to fix all the problems that we have in the country when it and it's deteriorating infrastructure why is that the case it's because we have pushed it off for so long and our country is old by that i mean its infrastructure is old because it was built during many years in the earlier 20th century and we're in the 21st century now and it needs to be updated and upgraded while other countries that had to rebuild after world war ii or have had a better uh not necessarily understanding but a better whole grasp on what is needed for infrastructure and less partisan bickering over infrastructure they were able to maintain their bridges roads airports modernize etc so it is it is what it is, right? One of the, the bigger things in the bill is the amount of money being spent on, on getting rid of lead pipes. Lead pipes, what we saw in Michigan, uh, with Flint, Michigan, is one of those things that should not be a thing still. Despite, But despite that, it still is a thing all over the country. People are immensely concerned about lead poisoning still happening. And lead poisoning still does happen to kids. Even outside of these cataclysmic events, 
such as what happened in Flint, Michigan. It is a basic necessity to have clean water. Super, super basic. And it is a travesty that we not, are not putting enough money into this. We're not putting enough money into fixing bridges and roads. Like there are, there are bridges that the that the the engineering uh, people have stated that are on the not on like the they're going to collapse tomorrow verge of collapse, but are on the verge of collapse. All things considered, the civil engineering groups have rated the infrastructure bill, even though it is a a lot of money, still a C minus. And I don't know about you, but when I was in college. A C minus was not a good grade. You might get a D for diploma, but you weren't getting a good job with that. So we need to invest more money in this. This is something that needs to be done every five, 10 years, like clockwork. We need to have a massive amount of money injected into the system now in order to fix these roads, bridges, expand broadband, expand cell phone service to everywhere, etc. Need a massive increase. I would say probably five times the amount of money that's being spent now. And then after establishing this good baseline, ensuring that at least part of that money is re not reallocated, but reauthorized every five to 10 years so that we can maintain the infrastructure that we have, expand the infrastructure that we need and ensure that this does not happen again. And we go to our deteriorating infrastructure in the country. So with the amount of money that's being spent on infrastructure bill, despite this fact, the progressives are... Uh, very adamant in their want to tie the infrastructure and the Build Back Better bills together. So the Progressive Caucus is digging their heels. The partisan bill is not yet completed and is therefore not ready for an immediate vote. So Chair of the Progressive Caucus, Jalapal, says Speaker Pelosi will not have the vote necessary to pass the infrastructure bill in the House. Over the weekend, the president and members of cabinet met with lawmakers in an effort to move the bills forward over the finish line. Due to the tight majority in the House, Pelosi can only lose three votes for the social policy bill, which Senate Democrats plan to push through via reconciliation. Representative Jellipal, Democrat of Washington and chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, said again on Sunday that her members wouldn't support the infrastructure bill unless it included simultaneous action on the $3.5 trillion infrastructure plan. So... Political brinksmanship. Is it necessary? You be the judge. And if you do Twitter, go ahead and tell me what you think and uh, what what your thoughts and opinions are on the infrastructure bill, the Build Back Better plan, and everything else that we've talked about so far. So if you're just joining us, welcome again to the Crowdsource Politics News Roundup. We do this every Thursday from about 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time to about 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And we like to cover the news that was for the last week. We also do another program called Cypher State, which is a monthly foreign affairs, foreign policy focused podcast that we will be streaming uh, onto Twitch, YouTube and Facebook, which is typically done on the third Sunday of every month and published on your favorite streaming service by the fourth Monday of every month. This this month's topic is still in the works, but I'm highly leaning towards talking about the recent election in Germany and what it could mean for the EU and the world stage. So let's get back into domestic affairs. Let's talk about immigration, DACA and the like. So earlier this week, the Biden administration took steps to preserve and strengthen an Obama era program that protects immigrants who came here to the U.S. illegally as children. 
USA Today reports that the Department of Homeland Security announced a notice of proposed rulemaking that would preserve and fortify the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals DACA program. Months ago, a federal judge in Texas ruled the program illegal and halted its acceptance of new applications. The judge ruled DACA violated the U.S. Constitution because it undermines congressional authority on immigration law. The president and administration appealed that ruling. The proposed rule would recreate the DACA policy as it was announced in a memorandum issued in 2012 by then Homeland Security Secretary Janet Napolitano. It called for the Department of Homeland Security to exercise prosecutorial, prosecutorial discretion for young children who came to the U.S. illegally, also known as DREAMers. Monday's DHS notice of the proposed rule said that DACA recipients should not be a priority for removal. The proposed rule will be published Tuesday and is open to a 60-day public hearing comment. One of the interesting things about prosecutorial discretion is that it was actually created by John Lennon uh, of the Beatles. And uh, it, it's one of those things where you have the, the idea is that the government has to enforce all its rules, but it can prioritize which rules to enforce because of limited resources. So with, Do with this, you would have the DACA recipients being put basically on the bottom of enforcement list and not being a priority and effectively allowing them to stay in the country. To be frank, they should be just granted citizenship immediately. If you've been in the country since like I, I brought this up on a Facebook debate that I had once. If you've been in the country since you were two years old. Right. Or not even two years old. Or, you know, let's say older than two. If you've been in the country since like 16, 18 years old and you are now 40 years old or 30 years old or hell, even 25 years old. Why aren't you a de facto American? Like, no, I'm being I'm being being completely honest with this. You've been inculcated into the culture. You've been socialized into the culture. You've known no other place like of your life really like if you were if you were older if you were younger than 13 when you moved to the united states what's the chances of you like having a familial tie to your country of birth outside of your immediate family or outside of your your family not much so why why would you consider these people to be an immigrant i, I just i don't fucking get it so that that's where i'm at with this dhx let's continue DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas said in a statement Monday that the Biden-Harris administration continues to take action to protect DREAMers and recognize their contributions to this country. Quote, this notice of proposed rulemaking is an important step to achieve that goal. However, only Congress can provide permanent protection. I support the inclusion of immigration reform in the reconciliation bill and urge Congress to act swiftly to provide DREAMers the legal status that they need and deserve. The proposed rule would exclude documented DREAMers, children of long-term visa holders who have waited for years for a green card because they're still they're, they're in the country legally. That's why. Now, one of the other things that should be noted here is that while he did support it going into the reconciliation bill, the chances of it meeting uh, congressional muster or the uh, by enrolled positive by the parliamentarian is very thin, mainly because it does not deal directly with the budget. Budget reconciliation, where it only requires 50 votes to pass, is by the Byrd rule required to be only about only and primarily about the budget itself. Immigration status is not about the budget. So the chances of this getting this 
being agreed to by the parliamentarian is very low and it is even probably even slimmer chance of it being overruled of having the parliamentarian overruled by a 51 vote was vice president harris being the tie-breaking vote on that primarily because of conservative democrats unlike republicans as everybody knows is that democrats are more of a big tent party there are somewhat socially conservatives in it there are not there are like a lot of liberals in there but it's this big tent and you can and it's harder to wrangle everybody to be on the same page and when you have that such a narrow threshold like you don't have any votes to give things like this like roll over ruling the parliamentarian are just not going to happen people are pushing democrats to get rid of the filibuster but that requires every single democrat to be on board with that and we know that kirsten cinema and joe manchin are not Primarily Joe Manchin. Joe Manchin is saying, mm, not going to do it. Now, Joe Manchin has said in the past that he's uh, open to amending the filibuster, perhaps requiring only 55 votes to break a filibuster, perhaps only, perhaps actually requiring people take the floor for a filibuster, etc. But that's probably just posturing because it's not going to happen. So that's where we are with DACA. Now with the Haitian migrants that we saw, we talked about last week as well. Immigrants, the immigrants who are grouped under the Del Rio Bridge in Texas last week have gone, but their plight remains. Some have been reallocated or relocated, sorry, reallocated, relocated by force to Haiti, while others were convinced to cross back into Mexico. The fortune among them remain in the U.S., where they will be able to plead their case for asylum. Haiti's Prime Minister, Arlie Henry, addressed the UN General Assembly last Saturday and warned that these will not be the last. Speaking to the issue of border control, Henry said many countries which are prosperous today have been built through successive waves of migrants and refugees. Global inequality is the fundamental driver of these crises, he also said. The problem, quote, the problem of migrants must remain, remind us, that human beings, fathers, and mothers will always flee misery and conflict and to strive to offer better living conditions to their children. Migration will continue as long as there are pockets of wealth on the planet while the majority of the world's population relives in poverty. It's not often reported, but the fact that is that many Haitian migrants fled their country after 2010 earthquake and worked in South America across the years, sending money back to their families. Facing racism, tighter immigration laws, and fallout from the pandemic in countries like Brazil Chile, and Chile, Haitian migrants have been forced to look for something new. Obviously, those issues haven't gone away, and there are already approximately 4,000 migrants, most of them from Haiti, who have passed through Panama en route to the U.S. in the last few days. It should be also noted that Haiti also just suffered another uh, major storm at a political assassination, crime is rampant. So the fact that they are leaving the country should surprise nobody. Uh, it should also surprise no one that they're trying to come to U.S. A lot of Haitians have family in the United States. They, the United States is in a better position to allow them to stay, work, and provide their labor and better, better American society, better American economy, and etc. CNN reports, quote, Haitian migration has been Roaming Haitian migration has been roaming Latin America for more than a decade, said the Interior Ministry of Chile in a statement to CNN. In Chile, their exodus is increasingly notorious, given the current working conditions that do not favor their insertion in the market, even with a visa and work permit. UN High Commissioner for Refugees, Filippo Grandi, earlier this week slammed the expulsion of some migrants under Title 42 a, quote, Trump-era policy that allows border officials to quickly expel migrants as a pandemic public health precaution. Now, this is a thing that 
the CDC that's been allowed for a long time. They're calling it a Trump era policy because Trump was the first person to implement such a policy. Maybe this is something that shouldn't exist at all, perhaps, or maybe it should be tight, more tightly controlled. I don't know which answer is the correct one on that one, because when you do have a global pandemic that's running rampant, like say, say Ebola suddenly goes from being spread through fluids to being airborne. Well, you don't want a bunch of people flooding into your country when you need to quarantine things and fi- figure out a, 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 a cure and a treatment and a vaccine for something that is that deadly. That's why I'm hesitant to say just get rid of it entirely. The summary mass expulsion of individuals currently underway under the Title 42 authority without screening for protection needs is inconsistent with international norms and may constitute refoulement, Randy said. Referring to a principle in international law that forbids returning migrants to countries where they would face irreparable harm. And the reason that this is particular is because of that is because Haiti is not a stable country. Haiti is on the verge of being a failed state. If you force people to return back to a failed state, chances are that they they have a high likelihood rather of dying or facing some sort of uh, persecution either at the hands of government uh, due to crackdowns or by gang members taking over the government itself. So Haiti is racked with an epidemic of violent crime, political turmoil and devastation from a recent earthquake. Large swaths of its capital city, Port-au-Prince, are controlled by gangs who operate sprawling kidnapping for profit operations. This is what happens when the when civil rule deteriorates you go back to a time of warlords and fiefdoms and feudal feudalism and rampant crime and corruption that's why a lot of people on the left and i would probably say even some on the right not a lot but some on the right were against the expulsion of the haitian migrants does kind of seem a bit weird that they all decided to gather at the same place um, but that could have been caused virally by using WhatsApp or Telegram or some other sort of internet communication program. But just say, saying, hey, look, this place over here is where we can go in at. There's been some conspiracy theories online uh, among some of some liberals, um, not so much on the left, that said that, this is, that some of this was caused by right wingers. But I don't I don't think that's the case. So let's continue. More than 2,580 Haitians, including 563 children, had been sent back to Haiti as of Friday, according to the International Organization for Migration. The agency, alongside the Haitian government, is scrambling to receive all the people being dropped off by the U.S. But it is unclear whether local officials and humanitarian workers are equipped to deal with the complicated individual cases, given the scale and speed of the expulsion. The International Organization for Migration and the U.N. point to U.N. human rights UNHCR as the agency responsible for any refugee claims among the deported, but the refugee agency on Friday told CNN its presence in Haiti is very limited, again, due to the natural devastation that exists in Haiti for that. Meanwhile, Haitians who eventually cross back into Mexico and an estimated 8,000 also face uncertain future. Per The Hill and Reuters, about 16,000 people are in Nicola a town in northern Colombia where they await a boat ride to the Darien Gap. These smugglers will reportedly take them through one of the most dangerous and impassable regions of Latin America. 
Uh, last month, Colombia and Panama decided to allow 500 migrants a day pass through their borders, far fewer than the nearly 1,500 arrivals seen daily, Reuters reported. Over 80,000 migrants traveled through Panama this year. Panama's president, uh, Cortizo, said in the United Nations General Assembly on Thursday in January, the country was receiving about 800 people per day. And as of August, that figure was up to 30,000 people. So this is, I don't know, what... What do, you, what do you guys want to hear about the the, the migrant crisis um, and and all that? Like, I don't know what more can be said. To be honest, it's it's a it's really it's so hard to fathom the amount of abuse these people face trying to make a better life for themselves and their family. That it it's really it really it's really hard. I and then on top of that, you have the Afghan refugees that are coming in. That are being um, they're being placed into areas such as Oklahoma, Texas. Uh, I think Missouri has taken some. Um, Mississippi has taken some, and the amount of resources, lack of resources, to say the amount, the lack of resources that is here for migrants, refugees, people that have fought with the country, people that are just needing a place to set their head on. And that sort of thing, like I don't know what more what more can be said. To be honest, I I truly I truly don't. I I I personally wish that uh, we could easily take in everybody. We have uh, approximately twenty thousand. I mean, we can take in everybody, but I mean, we should take in everybody. Rather, is what I should say. Uh, approximately twenty thousand people or so that are waiting in Germany, I believe for that are waiting in germany for uh to come into the united states from afghanistan the reason that that was the case that there's still that many people waiting is partly because there was a measles outbreak and it just goes to show that there's all these different factors that slow down and prevent aid getting to people that need it that we could help and it's it's very it's very difficult to to navigate all this so what are so let me know your thoughts again like i said in twitter or wherever you uh want to hit us up at uh and we will be sure to expand upon that there for those that might be joining us now this is again the crowdsource politics news roundup the crowdsource politics news roundup also runs a discord a facebook debate group and a writer's guild so if you would like to participate in any one of those so Facebook is slash groups slash Tribune Commons. It is a Facebook group. Uh, you can navigate it to there by going to Facebook slash groups slash Tribune Commons. And if you do, um, and the Writers Guild information is located therein. And if you do Discord, join the Discord. We're trying to grow our Discord community. Um, it's a place where we can all come together and talk about politics, talk about whatever, get some insights, watch some videos and stuff together and the like. And so it's a good time. So we are trying to grow that. So let's get back to the show here. So st- in coming into state politics now, we're doing some more state politics stuff here. So we are going to cover some of Texas politics. Texas politics are national politics. Is Texas a Republican led state? acting as a counterweight to the democratically controlled federal government. Given the clearly drafted SB8, known as the heartbeat bill, 
Governor Abbott's focus on border security, the reversal of mask mandates, laws that allow carrying a gun without a permit, penalizing the reduction of police budgets in large cities and limited discussion of systemic racism in classrooms that went into effect on September 1st. There is no question that Texas is pushing conservative policies into what are increasingly national debates and perhaps providing a purview of where the Republican Party is going to put its focus going into 2020 midterms and beyond. Political reports that even for a big state, Texas has seen an outsized amount of political attention as conservatives try to break new ground, expanding on decades of GOP control and a national political environment that tilts towards Republicans. Two more key trends are also behind the attention-grabbing policy drive. The Republican governor is preparing to face primary challenges in his 2022 election race, and potential presidential one, while conflicts are mushrooming between diverse liberal cities and the Republican-dominated state government, mirroring the same tensions that animating national politics. Quote, you put all these things together, and I think there's a, been a basically no-lane markers for Republicans in this session, said James Henson, director of the Texas Politics Project, which conducts public opinion polling in the state they're very confident about 2022 elections very confident about 2022 election given recent uh, precedents and a democrat in the white house so there have been no natural checks former president donald trump's influence still looms large in the state's politics as seen in the open letter to gop governor greg abbott last week Trump demanded the state legislature pass House Bill 16, which would allow state officials to request an electoral audit for future elections, as well as for 2020. Despite Trump's nearly six-point win over Biden in Texas last year, the Secretary of State office soon announced a full and comprehensive forensic audit of Collin, Dallas, and Tarrant counties in Dallas-Fort Worth area, as well as Houston's Harris County. The release did not provide any details, but said the agency expects the state legislature to fund the effort. The past few months have also stirred up new engagements among Democrats, said Democratic State Representative Ron Reynolds, one of the more than 50 lawmakers who walked out of the first special session in July to meet with federal lawmakers in Washington. And that walkout was over voting rights. Texas passed a slew of restrictive voting rules. Uh, across the state, things take, such as taking away the ability to vote 24 hours a day, taking away the ability to vote by mail, taking away the ability to vote from your car and have somebody come out to you to give you the, the machine to vote so that you can vote and not have to worry about the pandemic, etc. Now, one of the key reasons that they the, these things are seen as being bad rather than it just you know reducing the ability for people to vote is that they disproportionately would impact African-Americans. The reason being is that African-Americans highly utilized all three of those methods to vote in Harris County. And that's why Harris County is being targeted for these, these audits. Because God forbid more people vote, the Republicans can't win, right? That, at least that's the thinking. So you have to restrict as much of the vote as possible. Now, all these things play out. People really understand like, oh, this isn't normal. You mean other states aren't doing this, Reynolds said? It helps lay people understand that this isn't just politics. This isn't normal. The scale of conservative policies has been a game changer for Democrats, state representative Erin Zewire, constituents. She said legislation like Senate Bill 8, which allows virtually 
anyone to sue someone who had assisted with an abortion after six weeks didn't get as much fanfare during the regular legislative session this year because of the baseline confidence in Roe v. Wade. As for governor's seat, many in the state are still skeptical of the possibility of ousting Abbott, especially since assumed candidate Better O'Rourke hasn't even made an announcement yet. Reynolds said if O'Rourke maintains a centrist message, he could be in a good position to win over vulnerable moderates and independents that are increasingly disappointed in Abbott's performance. This is where I'm going to have to disagree with Texas Democrats entirely. All right. I live in Texas. O'Rourke cannot win a tech cannot win the state of texas he can't because of his stance on guns guns is a third rail for republicans like abortion is a third rail for democrats even if you have a lot of moderates saying that they don't want to see these these things come uh, to pass they really don't want to see their guns taken away. And that will energize the Republican base like nobody's business. Just like trying to over trying to overturn Roe v. Wade energizes the other half of the base in Texas. So he would have to fundamentally change his position on guns, which will make people, liberals, be turned off by him. And he wouldn't be able to convince, I don't think he can convince Republicans that he actually changed the stance on guns. Because he said, damn right, we're going to take your guns away. So I don't think he has a chance in hell of winning. If he runs, though, if he runs for the nomination, chances are he will win the Democratic nomination for governor and then lose in the general election, probably by about the same mark, probably by a bigger margin than he lost to Cruz. That's how bad, that's how much Texas likes its guns and how much it wants to stop abortion. While some Democrats in the state are cautiously hopeful about a changing tide, Sewer said it will take a much more concentrated effort to prove Texas is more of a swing state than others assume. Quote, Democrats have been out-organized by Republicans, and we're not going to start to win substantially until we match them for the organizing and think beyond the next election. An organization called Next Gen America is working to solve that problem right now. Next Gen is the largest youth or voting organization in the country. The group has registered 1.4 million voters since 2013, and today has a big announcement. Next Gen, so to... Before we get into next gen and that sort of thing, let's talk a little bit more about uh, Texas politics. So as I stated just a minute ago, Texas politics is dominated by, uh, by, by Republicans. It is dominated by some social issues, social issues being the gun debate, the abortion debate, and CRT. So everything that the Republicans have been pushing for the last year uh, are very much in Texas politics. Now, despite the fact that Democrats are gaining ground in Texas due to people moving to Texas from like California and that sort of thing, and due to other things such as general economic prosperity that happens kind of in Texas and the, 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 Democrat, the demographic shifts, Texas is getting younger, not older, uh, unlike some other states, and young people typically tend to be more liberal. It's still a, you know... A 55-45 split, ideologically. If Democrats really want to win in Texas, I think they have to change their entire strategy. And what they need to do is they need to be able to convince moderate evangelicals to break ranks. Now, that's not going to be a, a, a easy thing to do. Moderate evangelicals are still anti-abortion. Moderate evangelicals still tend to be pro-gun, but moderate evangelicals tend to be more socially conscious. 
about policies, things such as medical care, things such as refugees, immigrants, and that sort of thing. So you need to get them to break ranks with Republicans. And in order to do that, you kind of need a firebrand that isn't seen as a leftist. You need a person that you need a Democrat you need a person that runs as a Democrat that is pro gun, right? And doesn't say like almost anything about abortion. Like at all. Or if they say anything about abortion, it is the things that everybody can agree on, such as, well, you know, if the life of the mother is at risk, of course they should be able to get an abortion. It has to be narrowly tailored in order to get that three or four percent to break ranks. Then the other things that are that gets progressives going, things like Medicare for all or, uh, you know, Green New Deal. These things can be modulated in such a way that will get them energized and come out to vote more. It's a very hard sell. Don't get me wrong. It is very hard sell because liberals are going to live, right? Liberals want to be inspired. They want to be they want their their issues taken taken care of. They want all those things. And if you don't mention them, well, they're going to feel like that they're not being listened to. Much like evangelicals in general feel like they're not being listened to unless Republicans specifically said, I'm for evangelicals. I'm for the Bible. Whatever. And I don't see anybody on deck in Texas that will meet the, that threshold. So I am not confident in Texas turning blue. Can it get a bit bluer? Can it go to like a light pink in the next five years? Yes, absolutely again. But winning a statewide election, I just, I don't see it. Not, not yet. But let's find out what's going on with NextGen. So the San Francisco Chronicle reports NextGen, which is funded by billionaire Tom Steyer, is moving out of California into states where its deep pockets could help Democrats more namely in deep red Texas. Next Gen America plans to spend $32 million next year in Texas, Arizona, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, New Hampshire, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Nevada, with the goal of registering 288,000 votes under voters, sorry, under 35 years old, including 150,000 just in Texas. Now that's huge. Texas, a number of people who voted in the last election was 41%. So it's a roughly a 60-40 split, 40% voting, 60% not voting. And 100, adding 150,000 people to that number, overwhelmingly Democrat, will win. So maybe my last, my last thing of having to pull out the evangelicals might not be as correct as it was. But I still believe that the reason that that is the case is because many Republicans also don't vote because they're going to win anyways. So Democrats, rather, need to not only energize their base and get more people to vote, but they also have to siphon a bit away from Republicans in Texas. All right, let's continue. If you change, so this is a, end quote, if you change Texas, you change the entire country. Next Gen's new president, Christina Ramirez, told The Chronicle, it's all political podcast you need to set the political map not just for an election cycle but for a generation texas has long had one of the lowest voter turnout rates in the country 
During during the 2018 midterm election, 46% of Texas voters cast ballot, lower than the national average of 49%. And while half of Texas young voters nationally cast ballots in last year's presidential election, only 44% of those under 35 voted in Texas. In California, 50% of young 54% of young voters turned in a ballot last year. In 2020, after Next Gen's research found that young voters were enthusiastic about voting for Biden and spent $45 million to rally young voters in 11 states by explaining the policy differences between Biden and Trump, particularly on climate change. Young people are smart, she said. They want to know, what are you going to do for me? The message that works best with young voters is rooted in economic populism, she said. This is a generation that came of age during two recessions, has racked up enormous student loan debt, sees little chance of owning a home, and worries what the planet will look like when they're as old as Biden. People want an economic populist message that says, what are you going to do about the fact that 60% of Latinos make up make under $15 an hour? Ramirez said, what are you going to do about the fact that one in three of us don't have health care in Texas? What are you going to do about the fact that my kids have no idea how they'll be able to afford college? Also part of next gen shift in focus is that it will be pulling out of California, at least for now. In 2018, when Democrats retook control of the House, NextGen spent $3.8 million in the state and registered 28,766 votes, according to the organization. Its efforts helped flip even seven, flip seven GOP seats. Uh, so Republicans took, okay, also part of NextGen's shift in focus is that we'll be pulling out of California, so said, registered 28,766 voters, according to the organization. Republicans took back four of those districts in 2020. Next year, those same four district seats in Southern California and the Central Valley will be hotly competitive and pivotal to whether Democrats can retain their House majorities. But some top California organizers predicted that while NextGen's contributions will be missed, other organizations will pick up the slack. Quote, you don't need to come here and build infrastructure. We have a robust infrastructure here already where it comes to taking to young voters, said Luis Sanchez, executive director of Power California Action, which organizes young people of color. Sanchez says it's registered 35,000 voters during the past midterm cycle. Oscar Lopez, political director for the 700,000 member Service Employees International Union California, was equally confident that there will be a lot of people interested in working on California's congressional districts. Next year, he said he understood why NextGen would be focused elsewhere. This is a team sport, Lopez told me. Sometimes someone has to play on a different part of the field, but they're still part of the team. So let's go on to the economy and let's start with labor and employment. The four week moving average of new applications for unemployment was 340,000, which is just above the lowest level since the beginning of the COVID-19 crisis last year. The Wall Street Journal reports broadly the recent lower labor market data suggests employers remain reluctant to let workers go in a tight labor market and concerns around the Delta variant of COVID-19 could be easing economists said. New COVID cases, while still elevated from July, have trended down in recent weeks. Jobless applications edging higher reflects the moderation in overall economic activity, said Kathy uh, Bosniak, economist, economist at Oxford Economics. However, we expect initial claims to return to their downward path in the weeks ahead as the economy resumes stronger momentum. 
The recent level of claims is well down from millions of applications made weekly in the spring of 2020, but remain above 2019's weekly average of 218,000. Claims trended down much of the summer despite an increase in COVID-19 cases due to the Delta variant and the economic uncertainty that it caused. Thursday's claim report provides the first look at unemployment rolls after extended and enhanced federal unemployment benefits put in place to respond to the pandemic ended in all states on September 6th. Continuing claims made to pandemic programs are reported on a several-week delay. The end of the programs means millions of Americans have stopped receiving hundreds of dollars in extra weekly assistance. The programs that recently expired were created in early 2020 to respond to the pandemic's effect on the labor market, when more than 20 million jobs were lost in two months. One program provided payments to gig workers and others typically not eligible to tap unemployment insurance. Another extended payments to individuals who had exhausted state benefits. In addition, the federal government funded a 300-week enhancement for all unemployment programs. Some economists say termination of these programs will encourage former recipients to accept open positions, helping ease the labor crunch. Others say that it removes support that is still needed, especially those unable to work due to the lack of childcare on or safety concerns. Now, it should be important to note here that Republicans in pretty much every single Republican-controlled state eliminated theirs four or five months ago, and they did not see any improvement to their labor market. The reason being is probably highly to do with, one, the number of people that have died in the pandemic. We're at 700,000 plus. Estimates are anywhere between 600,000 and 900,000 just in the United States have died from COVID-19. This is not just all old people that were no longer in the workforce. These were people that were in the workforce. The roughly 20-30% of that number is people that were still of working age and employed. And so that's first. Secondly, people do not have the childcare that they need in order to work like they used to. Now, that should be obvious to everybody. Schools did not all go back to in-person. The uh, the amount of people that were not going to work to work, that were still working from home, didn't necessarily able to take care of their kids. And so some people that were, were some families that were working, that had dual income, dual income before the pandemic, have gone to a single income. Even though that that means less money in the household, despite the the support being given by the federal government, either in terms of unemployment insurance or the extra money coming from the child tax credit, the prebate. And so in order to revive the labor force, things that have to happen is one, you got to pay people more. People are not going to go back to working in crappy conditions for under $15 an hour. They were treated like crap throughout the entire pandemic. People were being yelled at for having to require a mask. People were being yelled at for not getting their food out quickly enough. People were being yelled at and being treated like shit by a whole host of people that, and while being told that they were essential workers, but being still paid like shit. Is it wonder why people are not wanting to work in service industry right now? That's one. Two, vaccines. Need more people to get vaccinated. Need the COVID numbers come down. That will encourage people to go back to work because they'll feel safe doing so. So those are two primary things that need to happen. Now, let's go. Let's continue. The ending of quote, the ending of these programs is realigning incentives in a way that's much more pro work, said Isabel Soto, director of labor market policy at American Action Forum, a conservative leaning think tank. She thinks lower benefit payments will encourage more people to seek jobs, although the uneven reopening of schools and other factors will keep some Americans out of the workforce. Ms. Soto's estimate 
estimates that 37% of recipients were paid more on benefits than prior jobs when receiving the 300 supplement. She also said that she found new applications for unemployment fell 14% in states that ended the program early, while continuing claims fell 5%. The expiration of the pandemic unemployment insurance should produce a boost in job creation. No, that's not a job creation boost, all right, as people going back to work <laughs> because they have they quote unquote have to. All right. That that's that that's not job creation. That's just whatever. Labor Department data showed that the states that ended benefits early had about the same level of job growth as other states this summer. An increased number of COVID-19 cases in August and early September due to the Delta variant and a shortage of childcare workers means many lost jobs during the pandemic, especially among black and Latino women, are still unable to return to jobs, said Michelle Holder, an economist and chief executive of the Washington Center for Equitable Growth, a, liber a liberal-leaning think tank. Quote, the economy remains in recovery mode, and there is still a deadly virus out there, she said. The thought that unemployed benefits were the primary reason people weren't taking jobs was not correct, and now we've seen that. Dr. Holder said while she expects the broader economic recovery to continue, the strength of the expansion could lose steam as unemployment benefits and other stimulus payments end for millions of Americans. All right, now let's look at more things for the economy. Let's look at unionization. A memo from the National Relations Board that opens the door in 2014 and 15 with football players at Northwestern University, but that ended when the National Labor Relations Board, NLRB, unanimously decided in August of 2015 not to accept jurisdiction over the matter. At the time, it said that the, because the board has no jurisdiction over public schools, addressing the Northwestern effort would run counter to the NLRB's the National Labor Relations Act, charge the board create stable and predictable labor environments in various industries. On Wednesday, the NLRB general counsel Jennifer Abazo said in a statement accompanying her memo, college athletes perform services for institutions in return for compensation and are subject to their control. Quote, thus, the broad language of the act, the policies underlining the NLR, the NLRA board law, and the common law fully support the conclusion that certain college athletes are statutory employees who have the right to act collectively to improve their team and their terms and conditions of employment. In the memo, she wrote that the environment around college sports had changed considerably since the Northwestern case. Quote, there have been significant developments in the law, NCAA regulations, and the societal landscape that demonstrate the traditional notions that college athletes are amateurs has changed. These developments further support the conclusion that college athletes are employees under the Labor Relations Act. Brozo cited the Supreme Court's unanimous ruling against the NCAA in the Allerson antitrust case. The NCAA's charges, changes in its rules regarding athletes' ability to make money from their name, image, and likenesses and college athletes' activism, which she wrote has skyrocketed along with national attention to social justice issues following the murder of George Floyd and concerns regarding health and safety in the face of COVID-19 pandemic. The NCAA's release a statement late Wednesday afternoon that read, in part, with college sports embedded within the higher education experience, we firmly believe that the college athletes are students who compete against other students, not employees who compete against other employees. 
The memo could add urgency to NCAA's efforts to get a bill passed by Congress that would be centered around the NIL issue, but also includes a provision specifically stating that college athletes are not school employees. A bill proposed earlier this year by Senator Jerry Moran, Republican from Kansas, includes such a provision. But Senator Chris Murphy, Democratic Democrat from Connecticut, and Representative Lori Turin, a Democrat from Massachusetts, have introduced legislation specifically designed to allow college athletes to collect bargaining rights. On Thursday, a subcommittee of which Turin's is a member is scheduled to hold a hearing on college sports at which the NCAA's president, Mark Emmett, has been set to testify. The guidance from the the NLRB is a major step in the right direction and Congress needs to go further. A statement from Murphy said in part, it's time to end the charade of amateurism and finally ensure that all athletes, the rights and benefits they have long deserved. So I'm going to cut this a little bit short and tell you a little bit of what my opinion is here. So with the, the college athletes compete at an extremely, extremely high level, excuse me, extreme high level and their likeness has been used in video games ads posters what have you for better part for decades now like since at least 19 at least 2000 so at least 20 years and it is only right that they have the ability to get compensation for their use of for the use of their likeness especially in terms of video games and uh in terms of the amount of practice and what amount of money they generate for schools by playing the sport that they play this is in addition to the amount of money that they get compensated through scholarships and this should be seen up and down the division line if a school is making a ton of money off of college athletes it is only right that the athletes be compensated in a manner that is fair and that means above and beyond the amount of money they are currently getting or school and perhaps sometimes a living stipend that's where i'm at with this more news about labor disputes coming at you two amazon workers were fired last april after complaining publicly about the warehouse working conditions during covid later filed unfair labor practices against the company the two were also involved in pushing the company to address climate change both were active members of the advocacy group amazon employees for climate justice and had offered much offered match donations up to $500 for warehouse workers citing insufficient protections. Amazon claimed the two were fired for repeatedly violating internal practices, but the National Labor Relations Board determined that they had been fired unfairly. The practices the parties announced yesterday that a settlement had been reached. CNN reports the former employees Emily Cunningham and Marin Costa said in a joint statement posted on Twitter that they were thrilled to have settled, saying that the Amazon will pay them lost wages and will be required to post notices informing employees that they can't be fired for organizing and exercising their right. Quote, this is a win for protecting workers' rights and shows that we are right to stand up for each other, for justice, and for our world. The women wrote, Amazon will be required to pay us lost wages and post a notice to all of its tech and warehouse workers nationwide. Amazon can't fire workers for organizing and exercising their rights. An Amazon spokesperson confirmed it had reached a mutual agreement that resolves the legal issues in the case and welcomes a resolution of this matter. The NLRB confirmed a non 
board settlement was reached in the case. After firings last year, nine U.S. senators, including now Vice President Kamala Harris, sent a letter questioning Amazon's leaders about its termination policies and accusations of retaliation. Now, for for those that might not be aware, uh, Amazon was was in the spotlight earlier this year when workers, warehouse workers, were trying to unionize, and they had failed their union vote. The union vote was done under the watchful eye of Amazon the company and also they were the the amazon workers were under those kind of conditions where they had to go to like different meetings and things like that that pumped them full of anti-union propaganda more or less now fair is fair right um i i personally and this is me not being quote unquote a lefty uh do not have much complaint about Amazon telling employees, well, you're not going to get all your money if you join a union, right? It's a lie because the idea is that you pay some union dues, the union represents you better, you get a better, higher compensation, and that is just kind of a cut of your pay increase. But Amazon has the right to tell its workers that, but it shouldn't sit them down for like eight hours and just badger them with it. It Shouldn't uh, drop boxes in front of cameras because you're supposed to be able to vote with without fear of retaliation. Amazon shouldn't know who voted for what so they can fire them later. And all these things here in this this Amazon dis, uh, labor dispute that I just read give credence to the fact that Amazon is not playing by the rules set by the NLRB. I am pro-unionization. I believe that we that as many people should have some sort of repre- union representation as possible, especially in lower income economic in lower income jobs. Uh, because they are often treated as disposable cogs in a giant machine, and that's just not good for anybody. They're also unfairly compensated, and I believe that if you were in a union, you would get more fairly compensated. They don't have much leverage individually, and so being able to collectively bargain would give them more leverage in the negotiating process. So that's where I'm at with labor unions. I'm a Nordic system enjoyer. I like the Nordic model. So call me a sock dem, call me a shit lib. I don't care. That's where I'm at. Now, people will say, but Amazon pays better than other employees or other employers in areas. That might be true. But the amount of wealth that they're generating from their workers and the amount does not is far and exceeds the amount of compensation they're giving their workers in terms of like percentage and knock on effects and that sort of thing. So they should be paying more a Amazon and they shouldn't be doing the whole thing of like, you have to meet this quota and train our robots to replace you thing either. That's just not good. So the economy, general business knowledge, what's going on, COVID, the like. The economic report card on President Biden's first full quarter as president is good, but not great. America's economy grew at a slightly faster rate than previously reported in second quarter, thanks to increased consumer spending, exports and inventory investment. The Bureau of Economic Analysis reported on Thursday. It was the second time the pace of growth in the quarter was revised higher. Gross domestic product, the broadest measure of economic activity, expanded at a rate of 6.7% between April and June, rather than 6.6% and 6.5% reported in earlier estimates. Yet even with the new upward revision, the growth still undershot expectations, noted Mike Englund, chief economist at Action Economics. The limited growth is in large part due to supply chain disruptions, which actually become more severe in Q3, England 
added in a note to clients. Americans did, however, spend big on services in the spring and early summer, particularly on going out to eat and traveling, as vacation rates increased. They also spent a on pharmacological products and clothing and footwear. Hotels and restaurants contributed the biggest boost to GDP growth rate in the industry comparison. The price index that attracts consumer spending, the so-called PCE price index, that is the Federal Reserve's preferred measure for inflation, was unchanged from prior estimates at 6.5%. That's the highest level since the early 1980s. The report also included a tally of corporate profits, American banks and financial businesses saw profits soar by a stunning $52.8 billion in the second quarter, compared with a measly $1.3 billion increase in the first quarter. Profits for all other corporations rose by $221 billion, compared to $133 billion in the first three months of the year. Now, it should be noted here that the supply chain bottleneck is no joke. There are an estimated 60 ships waiting <laughs> to make port and drop off the goods and services, goods that they have into the American marketplace. Thing, they, we still have a chip shortage going on, which is impacting everything from the computer that I'm talking to you on, the cell phone that I'm using for my camera, all, all the way to as big, big purchases as cars and other large uh, devices such as refrigerators and other durable goods. These things are contributing immensely to the increase in prices. And all these things are contributing to inflation. This is why the Fed is adamant that inflation is transitory. Despite this, as stated earlier in the, the podcast, congressional members are very worried about inflation. So we are on track, according to Janet Yellen, to reach about 4.4% inflation from previous year. Now, if you look at the inflation numbers uh, and and that sort of thing, you had this like you had a steady increase in about 2%. You had negative inflation. So you had deflation. You had that bubble. And then you're coming back up. And so we're kind of just like all at once filling that hole that's, that's here in the early months of the pandemic. But it still hits people's wallets in a bad way, especially if wages aren't increasing. So, but wages seem to be increasing to an extent, so it might be a wash, but it is still something to be concerned with and look out for. Now, it's, but it's nothing to get panicky about. Pay attention to it. Don't panic. Because if you start to panic, if people start to panic, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. As people believe more goods are going to be more expensive in the near future, they go out and buy goods earlier, putting a more pressure on demand, putting more pressure on supply, and causing prices to increase in a self-perpetuating cycle. Continuing on, GDP. MarketWatch.com reports the U.S. economy grew at 6.7% annual pace in the second quarter. Reserve government figures show as the U.S. got a big jolt in the spring from government stimulus payments and coronavirus vaccines allowed businesses to reopen. Government's third estimate of gross domestic product for the quarter was largely in line with its prior analysis. The rise in consumer spending was slightly faster at 12%, and exports were revised to show 7.6% increase instead of 6.6%. So the economy is coming back. It is coming back fast, but not as fast as some people would like. But the, the faster the economy comes back, the more pressure on supplies, the more supply chains we the issues that we have, so the higher prices. So this is that 
you know supply demand curve and all that jazz is is coming around and it's balancing out to a degree but we still have any issues these issues previously the government reported second quarter rose 6.6 clips other figures in gdp report were a little unchanged economic growth has slowed a bit in the third quarter because of the coronavirus delta variant but the u.s is still on track to expand around five to six percent in the remaining months of the year wall street dgia uh, economist forecast what is the fed saying at least three Federal Reserve officials said Monday that they were ready to pull back on their economic support measures, even though they don't see a threat from inflation. Speaking at separate engagements, Federal Governor Laurel Brainyard and Regional President John Williams of New York and Charles Evans of Chicago all expressed comfort with the first phase of policy tightening, a gradual pullback on the monthly bond buying that has provided support for markets and the economy. Fed's bond buying program is essentially the Fed going into the market and buying up corporate bonds to give it some surprise support. It also the buying up of bonds is, is supposed to raise the uh, amount of money that bonds can raise and provide liquidity and therefore more stimulus into the market by by just you know having some more money slosh around. That's what's supposed to happen. Quote: I think it's clear that we have made substantial further progress on achieving our inflation goal. There has been very good progress towards maximum employment, Williams told the Economic Club of New York. Assuming the economy continues to improve, as I anticipate, a moderation in the pace of asset purchases may soon be warranted. They stressed, however, the move, known as tapering, isn't providing any signal about looming interest rate hikes. So an interest rate hike would increase the amount of money, increase the cost of borrowing. So right now we have historically low borrowing rates, which is why you can get a home mortgage for as low as like with extremely good credit and maybe some government backing like you're for uh, a VA recipient or what have you, two uh, percent. Uh, generally speaking, it's between two and right now it's between two and three percent. Some people are seeing as low as one point nine percent, but that is historically low from the three to four percent that you normally see um and it can has been as high as four per four to five percent in the last uh, few years and so that makes the if you increase the money the cost it is to borrow you generally increase prices um but you also s- slow down demand and so as it balances back you have some you have a, a bit of uh, a tightening of inflation because less money is circulating in the economy The forward guidance on maximum employment and average inflation sets a much higher bar for the liftoff of the policy rate than for slowing the pace of asset purchases, Brainerd told the National Association for Business Economics. I would emphasize that no signal about the timing of liftoff should be taken from any decision to announce a slowing of asset purchases. The positions were largely consistent with a statement released after last Friday's Federal Open Market Committee meeting. Officials agreed that tapering may soon be warranted, with Chairman Powell saying after the meeting that he'd like to bring the minimum $120 billion a month buying program to a close by mid-2022. The move towards tightening comes even though the committee does not expect the current inflation pressures, which are running at the highest rate in decades, to persist. Evans also said he thinks the Fed should shoot higher on its inflation target than the traditional 2% goal. Instead, he said it should aim for inflation above or close above but close to 2%. We're talking like 2.5. I think the uh, FOMC's own actions and communications are playing an important role in restraining long-run inflation expectations, he said, also speaking Monday before the National Association for Business Econ- Economics. 
taken together, I am more uneasy about us not generating enough inflation in 2023 and 2024 than possibly that we will be living with too much inflation. Williams said he expects inflation to continue to run uh, above 2% for another year or so as pandemic-related swings in supply and demand gradually recede. However, he said inflation should fall to the target at some point during the year. In the quarterly economic outlook, members say that they see core inflation, which excludes food and energy prices, and the reason it excludes those is because they're volatile. So uh, excluding those, running at 3.7% this year before falling to 2.3% in 2022 and 2.2 and 2.1 respectively in the following two years. Officials also penciled in possibly one interest rate hike in 2022, followed by three apiece in 2023 and 2024. So a gradual tightening of lending practices expected in 2023 and 2024 uh, if these tightenings are not done gradually enough it can cause a slight recession so it would not be surprising to me if that happens around 2023 all right so if this is your first time joining the news roundup we'd like to do a little thing here called news of the weird where we take a bit of news that is kind of intriguing a little bit weird and but tells us still something important about our society and the world in which we live in today we are going to talk about the hamster that is beating the biggest wall street bets players on the market by trading cryptocurrency how would you say? Let's find out. What if we told you there was a hamster who has been trading cryptocurrencies since June and recently was doing better than Warren Buffett and the S&P 500? Meet Mr. Gox, a hamster who works out of what is possibly the most high-tech hamster cage in existence. It's designed so that when Mr. Gox runs on the hamster wheel, he can select dozens of cryptocurrencies. Then deciding between two tunnels, he chooses whether to buy or sell, according to the Twitch account for the hamster. His decision is sent over a real trading platform, and yes, real money is involved. Look, we're not telling you to follow this hamster financial decision or the process in the scientific in any way. The human behind the hamster account and money has not been made public. But what we can tell you is that his portfolio is near up nearly 20% since he started trading in June, according to his Twitter account. And as of September 12th, Mr. Gox was performing better than Bitcoin, the Nasdaq 100, Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway, and the S&P 500. While Mr. Gox's methodology is random at best, it does remind us that where people get their financial advice from is certainly changing. We've seen people getting tips from TikTok and from two kids in Baltimore. And in recent years, there's been more stock picking on Wall Street from bots. NPR's Planet Money even built its own 20. 27, one in 2017 that invested money based off President Trump's tweets. Now, to give you a little bit of context here. So, one, the reason why this hamster's account is so is able to perform so well is because of the meteoric rise of crypto prices since June. Uh, if the if you trade in crypto, you know that there are some cryptocurrencies that started off around 90 cents or so. Uh, in that time frame and have gone up to like $5 for whatever reason, people like different cryptocurrencies, either because of their white papers or because uh, they sound cool. They have a cool emoji. Like, yes, it's that bad. An emoji can make people buy crypto, <laughs> but it does, it does things like that. And because they're, 
had skyrocketed so much, it can make a lot of money. But be also because of how volatile it is, if you're constantly buying and selling the cryptocurrencies and you're doing it on a regular basis, you're going to catch the dips and, and, and increases in those prices. And over time, because of the volatility and because of the general trend upward, you're going to make a decent chunk of cash. Now, do not try this at home. This is not actual financial advice. It's just explaining why this is the possible. I personally have about uh, have some money in crypto and been playing around with it. Not a lot, maybe two hundred dollars or so in cryptocurrencies. But I've made, but I've made a couple, you know, a couple hundred bucks in it, uh, doing essentially what the hamster is doing, but not at random. Just saying, like, oh, if it go, drops down by ten percent, buy it. If it goes up by ten percent, sell it. Kind of thing like that, and not automatically like this, <laughs> like this rodent is doing. So that is that's why that is happening. Cryptocurrencies are also able to be traded on a whim now, or now have always been. And in fact, the markets are open 24 hours, partly why this hamster is doing so well. So it's just interesting. It's really interesting that this is happening. Um, I don't recommend people buy crypto. Uh, I recommend people take a steady amount of money, put them into index funds. Because with an index fund, over the long run, you're going to make money because the market is going, the economy should be expanding as long as population expands and everything like that. And so if that's, if you're looking to invest index funds are the way to go, they're also cheap. They're not, they don't have a lot of overhead and you can get started as, with as little as $50. So if that's what you want to do, if you're looking to get invested in the market, put money away for retirement or anything else, index funds are honestly the way to go. So everybody, again, thank you so much for joining us tonight. We greatly appreciate it. Without you watching this program, either on the VOD or live, we would just be a couple. I would just be a person shouting to the void that is the Internet. We do this for you. If you if you liked what you heard tonight, and I know that you did because you're still with us right now, uh, please go ahead and follow Crowdsource Politics on across social media. Find the uh, the YouTube link in the top right hand corner, top right hand corner, or if you're on YouTube, you know where it's at. You can follow us on Twitter as well, uh, with the link provided here. So follow us on Twitter at crowdsource poll. I do tweets daily talking about random different things, um, and share memes, 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 and whatever the hell I feel like. So please go ahead and follow us on Twitter as well. The, uh, the next time we will be live will be on thursday but the next time we will have cypher state will be october 17th the that's the date time is to be determined i need to coordinate with the other people that are going to be on the program and make sure that i can get them all on the same time uh if you do social media go ahead and f- join us if you do facebook join us on the facebook debate page at groups slash tribune commons if you don't do facebook but you still want to participate in some debates and get to know us a bit better go ahead and join the discord links in the about section on there as well um we also run a a writers group which you can find the information in the uh, tribune commons group and we also are part of a not-for-profit called crowdsource tribune where we'll have a website this weekly news roundup, Cypher State, the Crowdsource Politics Podcast. Get it wherever you get your favorite podcast and more inf- and more coming on in the future. 
things like contest. We just gave, we just actually, we awarded uh, some uh, some memes. We had a meme season ladder where people were able to submit memes and the community voted on them. And uh, we had two winners. We had a first and second place winner and they should be getting their um, their prize in the mail shortly. And once they get their prize and sends us a picture with their prize, we'll share it with you all. So that's the kind of things we'd like to do here at Crowdsource Politics at the Crowdsource Tribune. So if these are things that you're interested in, join the community. And as always, everybody, keep your head up through the political storm.